you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS in Pasadena for a morning of multilingual readings, interactive performances, and lots of kid fun. It's Super Fun Saturday on June 1st. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Take Two. Me, Martinez. LA schools are making plans to get some of the littlest learners back in classrooms, and things are also in the works to get older kids on campus, too. But teachers are saying not so fast. We're going to talk to LA School Board President Kelly Gomez to find out what has to happen to satisfy all stakeholders on a roadmap that everyone can walk together with confidence. It's all ahead on Take Two. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. I'm Amy Martinez. Uh, nice to have you with us today. And we have a lot to get to uh, today. But first, an update out of D.C. California Attorney General Javier Becerra had his first confirmation hearing on his nomination for Health and Human Services Secretary. Now, Becerra doesn't have a medical degree. And today, that was the focus for some GOP senators as the U.S. continues to try and weather the coronavirus pandemic. Here's Becerra partly addressing those concerns. We lost my dad last year on New Year's Day. When the end came, my dad knew we were there with him, at his side, in our home. Sadly, hundreds of thousands of Americans haven't had that closure this past year. That, senators, is why I'm here today. And in case you're wondering, just three of the past 12 health and human services secretaries had medical degrees. The second and final day of hearings on Becerra's nomination is tomorrow. All right, now let's turn to the latest information we've got on the virus and the vaccine. Though yesterday we passed a grim number in the death toll from COVID-19 in the U.S., things are getting better out there. Now, in L.A. County, for example, the Public Health Department on Monday reported 943 new cases, the first time in a while that the count was dipped below 1,000. So for more on where things stand and what we can expect in the coming months, we have Dr. Robert Kim Farley, a professor of epidemiology with UCLA's Fielding School of Public Health. Doctor, welcome back. Thank you so much, A. Good to be back on your program. And good to have you. Now, i got to say, uh, things do feel better. I'm, I'm a pessimist by nature, doctor, but I do feel optimistic for the first time in a while. Uh, but, you know, in terms of case counts for L.A. County right now, can you put things in context for us compared to points last year? Yes. So we're down to about uh, 1,800 cases on average. Um per day. Uh, So that's much better than we were when we were at 13,000 per day. But we're still, um, you know, we we had in July up to 3,000 per day. So we're getting down lower, but uh, even our first surge was at about 1,000. So we're still not, you know, totally out of the woods here on this, but very, very encouraging. Doctor, at the risk of sounding like someone who last year said that uh, the virus will just vanish in the summer when things get warmer, uh, with, the, with the spring approaching and the warmer weather, can we expect the cases uh, to fall even more? I think we can expect the cases to fall, A, I think for a number of reasons. First, as you just pointed out, it is warmer weather. Virus probably does not uh, survive as well in warmer weather. Plus, 
warmer weather means we're getting out of doors. So some of the opportunities for that virus to spread indoors will be less as we do move outside. And frankly, we are getting more and more people immune, not only because of the fact that we've had a lot of disease here that makes people immune due to natural immunity, but also because we are beginning to get substantial amounts of vaccine into people. And that's a that's a one-two punch that we did not have at this time last year, right? That's exactly right. And if you think about it, that uh, group that was out and about, shall we say, that may not have been practicing proper physical distancing and masking uh, that the health department was trying to ask for, many of those came down with disease, either symptomatically or asymptomatically. And so, you know, they have uh, an immunity, which is, I think, also driving this uh, numbers down. And part of uh, our optimism, or at least mine, uh, doctor, is that people are getting vaccinated, as you mentioned. Uh, Can you tell us, though, a little bit about how herd immunity factors into our brightening outlook? Yes. Uh, So herd immunity, or sometimes I like to refer to it as uh, community immunity. I mean, we're we're not uh, I like that better. Community immunity. That's a bit. (laughs) Yeah. We always come up, you and and me, we always come up with better terms for all this stuff. Remember physical distancing? Yeah. That's right. Really, when we hunt, rather than social distancing. And, uh, you know, the epidemiologist, of course, in me says herd immunity. That's the word we use. (laughs) But uh, I think community immunity is a much better word to be working with people on. Um, So uh, we probably have maybe 30, 40 percent or so um, level of community immunity in Los Angeles at this stage. So that's encouraging. But actually, if you look at it even more, um, when you think about the fact that that's probably not uniform across the county. And again, those people who had not been practicing guidance uh, probably were the ones most likely to have come down with disease. And so they probably have even maybe twice as much as that level. So they're approaching herd immunity or community immunity within that subpopulation. Uh, Probably that's what we're seeing these numbers dropping due to. And because of the fact that we're now especially targeting our vaccine, to those who are, you know, in the healthcare sector, obviously on the front uh, lines there, as well as those who are in nursing homes and the elderly, um, you know, those are the people who had severe disease and were dying. So we should yeah. see even more drops, not just in numbers of cases, but we should be seeing lots of drops in hospitalizations and in deaths because of the targeting of our vaccination at this stage. And doctor, for those who, who may not be quite sure on this, how does community immunity work? Yeah, so basically what's happening is that um, the virus, of course, is trying to seek out people that it is uh, that are susceptible and where it can grow and flourish and multiply. And if more and more of those people uh, have had vaccine, it uh, is kind of blocked from that infection. So in a sense, it finds no room at the end and it dies out naturally in the community. I declare, doctor, that herd immunity is so 2020. Community uh, immunity uh, is 2021's word. Right. Yeah, well, <laughs> you and I have agreed. All right, now. That's right. Now, get okay, the, now. Get the world. Now it's got to go viral, yeah, like now, viral tsunami. There you go. There you go. Okay, now we got to get a little bit serious here because, of course, there is still a dark cloud out there because there always seems yeah. to be one, and that's the variants of the virus that have made their way to California. Uh, so what's the latest on whether some or one of the new strains are, are more contagious or even more deadly? Well, interestingly enough, uh, the first one that we were most concerned about was uh, the UK variant. Um, and that one, uh, you know, is here, it's, is uh, spreading, um, but uh, it may be a bit more transmissible, potentially a little bit more uh, severe disease. Uh, then we come up with the South African um, variant that was uh, concerning because some of the vaccine, like the AstraZeneca, appears to be less effective 
against it, although it appears that the Pfizer and Moderna do still very well with it. But actually, we have another locally grown in California variant, yeah. this B1. Four two seven, and so uh, you know this one is uh, already at fifty percent levels around here, and you know expected to go up even to ninety percent. So, you know we have our own variants to worry about. We don't know exactly um, the issues of how much more transmissible this is, or how much more severe disease this may be, um, or how much uh, more impact on the vaccine uh, effectiveness it will be. These are things that we're all looking at very closely right now. I think the encouraging thing, though, is that. Even uh, with the AstraZeneca, that although you know the vaccine may not be as effective in preventing infection, these vaccines still be, do very good against these variants in protecting against severe disease and death. And that's, of course, really the main thing we want to do is keep people out of the hospital and, and have them not die, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, all right, let's turn to the vaccine now. A new research out of Israel shows that the vaccine developed by Pfizer and BioNTech SE are effective after just a one dose. Can you tell us about these findings and how the study was conducted? Yes, that's another encouraging thing uh, that you've brought up, A, is that, you know, these uh, vaccines, both Pfizer and Moderna, uh, appear to be quite effective, uh, you know, in the 85% category, even after one dose, again, after two to three weeks. Um, and then, of course, they go up even higher to 95% uh, after two doses. And so uh, these are very, very good vaccines in terms of looking at, you know, other vaccine types of efficacies. This is in the measles vaccine range uh, as compared to, influenza that can be, you know, at the 50, 60% range. So these are very good uh, numbers. And it also shows that you can begin to get protection even after one dose. Is there a chance, doctor, that this could lead to the U.S. maybe delaying a second dose, maybe in an effort to inoculate more people similar to what the U.K. is doing? Well, there has been, you know, talk about doing this. I think most people feel still it's better if we can to keep to the regimen that the vaccines were actually tested. And that means 21 days between doses uh, for the Pfizer vaccine, 28 days between doses for the Moderna vaccine. Now, CDC has said that we can go up to six weeks between doses if needed, but that shouldn't be the way it's scheduled. So at the moment, we'd like to stick, if we can, to the regimen that has been tested and known and proven to be effective. And the other thing I heard is uh, Pfizer and the BioNTech uh, also announced that their vaccine can be stored in, in standard freezer temperatures for up to two weeks. That sounds like a game changer, doctor, is it? Yes, it is because of the fact that uh, these freezers that they had to be stored in were like minus 70 degrees centigrade. This is really cold. This is not standard types of freezers. But now they're talking about being able to go two weeks in standard type of commercial freezers, in which case this means that the vaccines can be sent out to more rural areas that would not otherwise have these types of uh, specialized freezers. So I think it just helps in the distribution of the vaccine and getting it into people's arms. And, and the Johnson & Johnson's vaccine. Vaccine. That, that's supposed to be the single shot vaccine. What more can you tell us about it and where it stands in terms of approval? Yes, that's another one that'll be, I think, a very welcome addition to the armamentarium we have with vaccines against COVID. And actually, this is encouraging. It's expected uh, this Friday to be brought before the Food and Drug Administration's expert group, the ones that make a decision as to whether to recommend this be a um, uh, EUA experimental use vaccine in the United States. And um, in the previous Pfizer and Moderna, the very next day, the 
FDA made the decision. So uh, mm-hmm. it's possible that we will see by you know Saturday or at least early of next week uh, a decision about adding a new one into this mix. Wow. Okay. Now we're talking to uh, Dr. Robert Kim Farley from UCLA. Uh, staying with vaccines for a second, uh, we have a, a few listener questions about adverse reactions. Some report feeling sick after the first dose, the same with the second dose. Any sense of, of how bad a reaction people have to the second vaccine shot and, and what factors figure into that? Yes, you know, I think it is so variable. We don't know uh, all the factors that may be genetic. Uh, I know my wife and I just finished, uh, we're at 73, so we just finished our uh, second dose. Uh, first doses were totally uh, without any symptoms, maybe mild sore arm. Uh, for the second dose, I had a, a sore arm and uh, actually felt a bit, uh, you know, achy and a bit tired the second day, but she did not have that effect. So again, what you need to do is just simply uh, recognize after the second dose, you may have a little bit of feeling of fatigue uh, and uh, achiness. Uh, You may take Tylenol uh, for that and uh, maybe not plan something really intense for the next day, uh, just in case you have some reaction that uh, you just want to take a little bit easier from. Is the achiness part of your immune system getting boosted? Is, is that uh, is that figure into to part of that reason? Yeah, it's probably just your own system, you know, responding to it the first time around. Of course, you don't have any pre-existing antibody. Uh, that's what you're you're presenting the body with this new antigen, we call it, that, that creates the antibodies. And then the next time around, you already have uh, yeah. uh, some antibodies and your cells are primed to make more. And so they jump in. And I think that's for some people myself included, that just meant that, uh, you know, you felt your body jumping into action here to fight this uh, and create more antibody. Yeah, that means it's working. Something's happening. Uh, another exactly. Listener, another listener, doctor, wrote in to ask, what does the effectiveness of the vaccine measure exactly? Yes, yeah, so effectiveness of the vaccine, uh, we call it vaccine efficacy, and it's done uh, by doing trials in which you give people <laughs> half of them vaccine and half of them don't have vaccine. Uh, you do this randomly, so people don't know themselves even if they have vaccine or not. And then you look um, over time as these people get exposed to the virus, how many people come down with disease, and you have what's called the attack rate in the vaccinated and you have the attack rate in the unvaccinated, and you compare those two numbers, and uh, there's a formula, it's attack rate um, in the uh, unvaccinated minus the attack rate in the vaccinated over the attack rate in the unvaccinated. If you think about that, if the v- vaccine doesn't do any good, it's the attack rate in the, in the vaccinated, the same as the attack rate in the unvaccinated, so there's a zero at the numerator, and so it's no good. And if yeah. the uh, vaccine is uh, you know perfect, then... Um, you end up with uh, uh, the fact that uh, you got 100%. So that's, that's the f- way it works, and it's just okay. a mathematical formula. Now, on, on Saturday, doctor, my uncle got his second vaccine, his second shot, and I, I called him afterward just to see how he's doing, and he kind of joked with me, and he said, I'm going to Disneyland tomorrow. And I said, well, first, you can't because it's closed. <laughs> no one's going to Disneyland anytime <laughs> soon. But second, um, you know, you probably shouldn't go anywhere for at least a couple of weeks. So how long in general does it take for the second shot to happen before someone is fully immune to getting sick from the virus? Yes. A, well, I think that's a good question you raised because in a sense, if you will, if you will, the full, the fully immunity, you would imply 100% protection and we're not going to get that. 
you know, we're about 95% protection, even with the two doses. So I think it should never be a fault sense of security that you're totally protected. Uh, but you should wait two weeks after that second dose to be your own maximally protected and probably about 95%. Two weeks. There you go. I'm, I hope he's listening <laughs> right now. And it's not me saying it. It's you saying it. Maybe he'll believe That's you. Right. Uh, really quick. Cool. What about vaccines for those under 16? Where does development uh, on that stand for, for kids? Trials are undergoing right now about that. So I think we'll know in another couple of months uh, the effectiveness of uh, vaccine at younger ages. Uh, there'll be a third uh, effort, you know, looking at 12 to 16 and maybe then ultimately under 12 as well. Um, but I think the fortunate thing for us is that children who are much younger, let's say under 10, are, uh, you know, much less likely to come down with uh, infection and severe disease. So that's the good news. You know, considering, Doctor, that uh, we, we seem or at least appear to be coming out on the other side of this pandemic, um, still, everyone still has to keep their guard up and still be careful. Um, will this thing just be one of the things that we just deal with in our lives, you think, going forward? Well, I think you point out there is certainly this light at the end of the tunnel, and it's just unfortunate the tunnel became such an ugly one and a long one for us. Um, but in the end, I think what will happen is that um, we will be able to conquer uh, COVID uh, in terms of being a public health major problem. I think that unfortunately, because of the uh, lack of vaccine, not so much here in the United States and uh -huh. developed countries that have jumped to the fore to not only make vaccines, but also get contracts for vaccine purchasing. Mm -hmm. I'm most concerned about the developing world and their access to vaccines. And I'm very pleased. In fact, the United States has decided good, now good. to you know, provide some $4 yeah. billion dollars to help our neighbors. That's Dr. Robert Kim Farley of UCLA. More Take Two coming right up. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm e. Martinez. The Los Angeles Unified School District will resume some in-person tutoring as early as next week. And there's talk of reopening elementary schools as early as April, assuming coronavirus case counts continue to drop. Already, smaller districts in L.A. County have allowed some of the youngest students back in the classroom and are making plans for a return of the older kids as well, possibly before this school year's up. Now, this, I know, has some parents and students uh, shouting, finally, up to the head. Evans, but not everyone feels comfortable with going back in person, and there are plenty of hurdles to jump in order to get everyone to that point. Over the course of the next few days and weeks, we'll continue to check in with stakeholders at schools across the county within LAUSD and elsewhere. Today, we have LA School Board President Kelly Gomez representing the 6th District for LAUSD and much of the East San Fernando Valley. Welcome back. Thanks for having me, A. All right. I know a return to campus is far from a done deal and getting there is difficult. Uh, what discussions have you and your board members been having about this and with the superintendent? We have been planning for a safe reopening of our physical schools for months. We've already invested in upgrading our ventilation systems to the MERV 13 filter, which is the highest quality air filtration available. 
We've upgraded our classrooms and facilities so that we can adhere to social distancing protocols. And we've invested in all the necessary PPE and sanitation supplies. Now, at this moment, we're glad to see that the COVID cases have dropped significantly since the peak in early January, but we're still at a very high level of the virus overall. So at the moment, the board and the superintendent are focused on advocating so that we can prioritize for our employees to have access to the vaccine as soon as possible. We're monitoring to ensure that the overall cases and rates of community spread continue to stay low, especially in our highest needs communities, which have really been devastated by the pandemic. And we're finalizing our planning for what our hybrid model will look like and communicating those details to our families and our communities. Now, you mentioned uh, some of the things that uh, you've been working on, such as ventilation, uh, social distancing, um, and, and, and things of that nature, PPE as well. I know that's one of the things that uh, UTLA will be voting on uh, next week uh, as a condition to come back into classroom. What about when it comes to vaccinations and LA County being out of the purple tier? Uh, if that, If those options aren't met, I don't think UTLA is too conducive to heading back into the classroom. Yeah, I think that's a correct assessment. And I will say that, you know, our superintendent and many on our board agree that the current rates of COVID, while not at the height of what they were during the winter surge, which were obviously horrific, they are still at an objectively high rate in Los Angeles County. And so we want to take into account not just the progress that's been made towards lowering COVID, but truly getting us to a low rate of COVID. Um, and as I said previously, focusing closely on our low-income communities of color. Um, those are the majority of students that we serve in LA Unified. These are families that have been disproportionately impacted by the virus. Um, and so we want to make sure that the COVID rates in those communities are objectively low and stay that way so that we're not in a place of reopening our schools, but then immediately closing them down again in a couple of weeks. Well, they, and that's one of the things that UTLA is worried about, considering that uh, Latinx communities are, are more susceptible and, and seemingly suffering more as a result of this pandemic than other communities. And, and you represent District 6, communities such as North Hills, Panorama City, Van Nuys. What have you heard from families and school staff about how they've managed during this time of remote learning? You know, I think that our educators, our principals, our teachers, our classified staff have all been working incredibly hard to make distance learning the best possible experience for our students and families. That being said, we recognize that distance learning isn't ideal. There are students for whom distance learning in particular presents real challenges, whether it's students with disabilities with sensory issues or our preschool students for whom it's not developmentally appropriate to be on a computer for long periods of time. And so we feel urgency to make sure that we're providing as many safe in-person services for those high-need students as possible. Um, and the district has announced that we're, we're going to be starting those services back up and expanding them next week. But also, that's why we're urging the county to prioritize vaccines for our educators, um, why we continue to advocate for good decision-making that will ensure that communities like Pacoima and San Fernando and Van Nuys and Panorama City aren't continually hit by huge increases in the virus so that we can reopen our schools more broadly. How do you convince, though, parents that uh, might be worried about sending their kids into a classroom? You mentioned all of the things that you've been able to do within the, the actual campuses and, and the buildings. But still, I mean, some parents might be worried about sending their kids back, especially in areas that uh, that are been very, very hard hit to, to the to the virus. 
Absolutely. And I'm particularly attuned to this because I do live and work in the East San Fernando Valley. It's the community I represent. And many neighborhoods in the East San Fernando Valley have had incredibly high rates of COVID, not just in LA County, but we've been hotspots nationwide. And so that's why the district is doing everything possible, one, to make sure that we reopen at the safest moment possible, but also to put every mitigation measure in place. And that includes vaccinating our school staff so that it will be the safest possible experience for our families. We know that low-income communities of color um, you know, don't have the same ability to absorb risks that more affluent families may have. You know, they don't have paid leave from their jobs if someone gets sick. They're more likely to live in crowded housing, so there's not a place um, to safely isolate from other family members. So in order to do right by our families, we have to put every step in place to make sure it's as safe as possible. And we've done that in terms of our facilities. We've done that in terms of training our staff on um, safety protocols. But that's also why we've stepped up in a big way around our COVID testing program and now around vaccinating our staff. Where do you think the the failings have been when it comes to messaging. We, we've talked to pediatricians on this show over and over again who say that COVID-19 does not spread as rapidly among young children. But it doesn't sound as if the teachers in UTLA believe that at the very least because they don't seem to be at least willing to go back into the classrooms right now. So where has the messaging just not been effective? I think the messaging has been inconsistent. You know, when it comes to, for example, the state standard for reopening on December 29th of 2020, the state standard for reopening was having fewer than seven cases per 100,000 residents. And then, you know, unilaterally, Governor Newsom announced on the 30th that now the case rate is 25 cases yeah. per 100,000 residents. And so I think it's really challenging um, for our staff and for our families to have trust in those kinds of metrics when seemingly arbitrary changes happen all the time. And there isn't a lot of effort made to convince families as to why that is a safe metric. And so I think that's why in LA Unified, we're really hoping um, to see even greater declines and consistently low declines um, in terms of COVID in our communities so that families and staff can have real confidence and trust that that measure is a real thing. Um, it is not an arbitrary decision um, made by a politician. Are you at all concerned that families might leave the district because of the delay in the return to schools? You know, it, it is a concern, but I think ultimately for me as a decision maker, um, equity is what guides me. And so making sure that we are doing everything possible to do right by our highest need families, our low income families, our black and Latino families is what drives me the most. We can't put these students and families unnecessarily in harm's way. We have to work to make sure it's safe for all of them before we can reopen our schools. What should we be watching for? The determining factor uh, that gets everyone back into class is it going to be getting teachers vaccinated, or at least getting that started, that process started, or case counts following following to an acceptable level. I think it's both case counts, and obviously, again, that there are sustainable declines in terms of the COVID case rates in, in LA County and in the district boundaries, but it is also vaccine access. Um, you know, we have a robust plan for how we will ensure that all of our educators have access to the vaccine um, starting March 1st. 
but all of that is really dependent on whether we get the appropriate amount of doses um, to meet the needs of our staff. Um, so I would watch that space closely. I would I would watch the COVID case rates. Um, and I would also monitor the in-person services that we are starting up next week. If we're able to do those safely, um, I think that that helps create a proof point for moving towards a broader reopening, hopefully in April. That's L.A. School Board President Kelly Gonez. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And tomorrow on the program, we will continue our conversation with School Board President Kelly Gonez to discuss the vote last week to cut one third of the school police force. Life is slowly starting to return to some semblance of normal, but a lot has been lost in the last year. At the onset of the pandemic, researchers warned half of California's child care slots could disappear permanently. KPCC's Mariana Dale reports on the thousands of providers who've closed in the state. Melissa Rodriguez hasn't had a table in her dining room for more than 10 years. It's normally a play space. There's Legos and toys and dolls. We have lots of art stuff. This whole thing's art. Her Orange County home is a licensed child care for up to eight kids. Or at least it was. Look, everything's stacked in boxes, empty bulletin board, nothing. She stayed open throughout the pandemic, but some parents started working from home. Others lost their jobs or couldn't afford to pay for child care. Rodriguez's attendance fluctuated. It's hit zero twice. It was so devastating when I found out I was losing all my kids again. I didn't get to make that decision. I didn't get to say, I'm done, I'm burned out, I'm over it. The world said, okay, you're done, good luck. Figure it out. Statewide, nearly 34,000 child care providers continue to operate. But at least 3,122 providers reported permanent shutdowns to the State Department of Social Services since last March. About a third of those closures came from L.A., Orange, Riverside, San Bernardino, and Ventura counties. It's heartbreaking to talk about it because we really did have, oh, sorry, I'm getting emotional. Elizabeth Brown was the executive director of Fair Oaks Preschool. It was forced to close after losing its lease at a Pasadena church. Brown says the nonprofit school looked at dozens of potential properties before their funding ran out. At the end of the day, if you can't get children to enroll due to the fact that the families are scared, understandably, that revenue just isn't going to come in to either pay back the loan that you've just taken out or continue to provide payment for the staff that you're working with. For former curriculum specialist Shireen Cassis Chaconi, the school shutdown meant the loss of a job and child care for a three and a half year old daughter. She's asking, when can I go back to school? We're in a dilemma where... I can't just enroll her in a school because tuition costs for early education is so expensive. Even programs that remain open are losing money. St. Mary's Tefankian Preschool in Glendale is licensed for up to 200 kids. Director Arsene Agazarian says 110 students are enrolled now. Public health guidelines limit the number of kids in each classroom, so she's had to furlough some staff. We don't have a really big reserves, but it is meant to be for the rainy days, and I guess this is really a storm coming in. Agazarian estimates the 45-year-old school can stay afloat for maybe six more months running this way. L.A. County and the state as a whole have consistently lost child care slots since 2014. Keisha Nzewe is the public policy director at the California Child Care Resource and Referral Network. They've tracked the supply of child care since the 90s. 
it really shows us that childcare was struggling before the pandemic. The pandemic has really shown that bright light onto the instability of our childcare system. California leaders are still working out how to spend close to a billion dollars in federal money for child care. Some local jurisdictions, including Orange County, where Melissa Rodriguez lives, created their own grant programs for providers. I'm pretty sure I qualify for a few things. I just don't know how to get to any of it. This was a frustration shared by several providers. Critical information doesn't always reach everyone in the state's fractured early childhood system. I feel like we have such an important job when people need us, like to care for their kids. But then we just get forgotten in the background. Rodriguez would like to reopen her child care. She frowns when I ask about the next steps. She's still trying to figure that part out. Covering early childhood, I'm Mariana Dale. All right, fair to say that we are a spoiled society when it comes to the things we want. I mean, if we want something, we just order it, someone makes it, and someone sends it to us. So if you've been wondering why we've had vaccine shortages, it's not exactly as if a lot can be made and just sent to us. There's a reason for why that can't happen, and that's coming up when Take Two continues. Stay with us. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on kpcc.org. Ami Martinez. President Joe Biden says he's ordered enough vaccines to immunize every American against COVID-19. But his administration says it will take until July to get all of the doses it needs. Now, so far, a lot of the distribution problems we've seen have to do with shortages in the vaccine supply, from the scramble to make appointments to the inequality we've seen when it comes to vaccinating black and Latino communities. So a natural question seems to be, why can't we just make more vaccines? doses like right now. Well, like everything related to COVID-19, it is not that simple. Ryan Gabrielson is a staff reporter for ProPublica covering the FDA and healthcare, and he and his colleague Isaac Arnsdorf have been reporting on this exact question. So, Ryan, let's start off with the current state of vaccine production. How much have supply shortages affected the rollout and the number of people vaccinated? Well, so uh, first off, thanks for having me. Sure. Uh, in the early days of the rollout, States had such a hard time logistically getting uh, shots into arms that they built up this backlog. So we haven't or only now starting to feel the effect of the fact that the supply of doses has not been increasing and that it's basically been stuck at about 10 million or so doses delivered to the states every single week. Uh, cumulatively so far throughout the effort, we've given a first dose of the vaccine to 44 million people. Uh, And about half of those or close to have received a second dose, completing the immunization process for them. Uh, What's going to be coming in, happening right now and going to continue probably for at least the next several weeks is that we're not going to be dramatically expanding that number the way we might have expected a few months ago. 
You know, I always think about it, Ryan, that uh, considering the Herculean effort that it took to even get to this point, to have a vaccine this quickly, that maybe we should kind of temper down our expectations on this and not, not be so demanding. It would at least make things easier uh, as we wait. No, yeah. And I mentioned that the Biden administration's goal of getting enough doses by the summer. Now, based on your reporting, uh, how close are we to meeting or not meeting that goal? So that goal is 600 million doses total, enough to give two doses to most of the country of the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. And some portion of that would also be the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, assuming that receives authorization from the FDA here in the next couple of weeks. We have a really long way to go (laughs) from that, uh, but we also have a long way until July. Uh, So far, 80 million doses have been delivered to the U.S. government and distributed to various entities that give the vaccine, uh, mostly to the states. Uh, So, you know, you can do this very simple math. That's another 520 million doses uh, to go. Luckily, uh, you know, production will ramp up. It's Uh expected to be on the back end of that. So where uh, instead of like this even you know, uh, regular constant every week increase, there's probably going to be a pretty significant expansion in April, May, and June. And is that if everything goes smoothly kind of a timetable? Yes. That's all based on the, the understanding that every single lot that's produced by these manufacturers, uh, is, you know, clears, uh, FDA review and also that they there's no hiccup in the supply chain of what they need to make the doses or or other unforeseen things. Now, since the days of the Trump administration to now, a lot of people have brought up the Defense Production Act. That's the law that uh, lets the government jump to the front of the line and, and get direct access to uh, critical materials. We were talking about this. I remember about uh, PPEs and masks and things like that. So, uh, Ryan, why can't President Biden just invoke the act and start churning out more vaccine? Uh, if only. Uh, <laughs> alas, uh, the Defense Production Act is not like an on button on equipment that isn't like that's currently just waiting to be, you know, operated to make vaccines. Uh, even in plate, you know, to the extent that there are factories that we could take over with the Defense Production Act and turn them into uh, mRNA, the va- current vaccines we're using, uh, tech- that technology into those types of uh, manufacturing plants. It takes uh, months to get the correct equipment, um, you know, manufactured and delivered and then installed uh, weeks or potentially even months more to calibrate it and test it and make sure that it, that it is producing this very uh, complicated and delicate substance correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, and that's all before it actually starts you know, turning out a single dose that can go into someone's arm. Have, has the Biden administration or even the Trump administration used the Defense Production Act at any point to help speed up our response? Yes. They have. Okay. So at the end of December, the Trump administration began using it to basically ensure that the manufacturers of uh, the Pfizer and Moderna and their partners get first access to raw materials and to certain pieces of equipment that they need uh, to make the vaccines. And the Biden administration has recently expanded that to ensure that uh, the companies that make this equipment, that they're not fulfilling any other orders before these orders, you know, for the, for the vaccine are, are completed. So it, 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 that does help. It's not the same as just 
people talk about the act like we're just taking over a dormant facility. Like it's a switch that you flip. Like I it's mean, a yeah, switch. Yeah. Like it's uh, in Fantasia, you know, Mickey Mouse <laughs> with the with the wand. Dun, yeah. dun, dun, dun. Uh, but it's 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 far more complicated than that. And while you know the technology we're using on these first two vaccines is well understood, we've never mass produced uh, an mRNA vaccine before. And a year ago, we were producing uh, a tiny, tiny fraction of of this kind of stuff. And now we're making enough for the world. We're speaking with Ryan Gabrielson, a staff reporter for ProPublica, who's been covering the vaccine supply. Um, all right. So what would it take, though, to expand production capacity so, so companies can start making more vaccines? So one part is already happening. Uh, and they've uh, both parts. They've bought the equipment needed to expand capacity. A lot of that has been delivered or is being installed. Uh, the other thing that has been happening since last year is uh, securing investing huge sums of money, more than a billion dollars, in the companies that make the raw materials. So it's uh, vaccines, this one in particular, uh, is different from, say, like a drug, a pill you take, which is has an active ingredient that is manufactured and then just put with the you know other things into a pill to, so that it holds safely together. Mm. This, uh, these materials have to be uh, grown and are the results of a chemical reaction. It starts with E. coli, which is gut bacteria, and a sort of the blueprint for this vaccine is grown in that bacteria. Enzymes are then added to uh, assemble the mRNA strands that are the thing that cause the immune reaction. And then we have to have these lipid nanoparticles, which serve as sort of like uh, a FedEx box hmm. to protect and deliver the mRNA strands to our cells once injected. So, uh, you know, we, we need a, a ton of the E. coli, the enzymes, uh, things called nucleotides, and these lipids uh, on a qu- scale, a quantity that we've never before produced. And we're doing it, and they have to be human grade, not, you know, we, we've produced them at animal, you know, for animals and for food production before in large scale, but human medical quality is a whole different deal. Yeah. And what you said there, a scale that we've never seen before. I think everyone has to always keep that in mind because this is uh, not uh, normal, what uh, what has happened the last year. Um, one more thing. We, we know that there's a new one-shot vaccine that could become available soon from Johnson & Johnson. Uh, hasn't received uh, emergency authorization from the FDA yet. But uh, if it does, Ryan, I mean, how could this help, uh, new vaccine help with the supply issue? Yeah, uh, In the long term, I mean, long term meaning the next four to five months, it, it could be a very big deal. Uh, in the near term, much less so it appears. It, you know, assuming it does get authorization, uh, they are probably only going to have a few mu- million doses available to distribute, uh, which is a bit of a disappointment. Their contract originally uh, called for them to have 12 million doses uh, ready by the end of February. The company has said that they are going to fall uh, short of that by some unknown amount. We'll find out, uh, I'd imagine, in the coming weeks. And they're also having a hard time ramping up production. While they use different technology and different supplies, it's also uh, a fairly novel. uh, There's only one other uh, vaccine of their type that has been authorized before. So, and they they actually have to grow viruses, uh, non-replicating safe viruses, but it's uh, none of this is easy. All of this is complicated biochemistry. That's Ryan Gabrielson, staff reporter for ProPublica, who's been covering the vaccine supply. Ryan, thanks a lot. Thank you.
So when uh, I wind up do getting that uh, second shot in my arm, or that first shot, depending on which one I get, I do want to head not only to the movie theaters, but also to certain amusement parks, because i got one of those passes that I need to cash in. We'll find out how close that is to happening when Take Two continues. It feels like summer. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC. In most places you get your podcasts. Sammy Martinez. All right, now let's check in on how theme parks are doing. After being closed for almost a year, Six Flags Magic Mountain announced on Twitter late last week that it would reopen in spring 2021. Now, if you have not been looking at your wall calendar, that is soon. There was a lot of excitement in response to that, too, but uh, also a lot of skepticism. After all, the current state rules only allow theme parks to reopen if the county that they're in has reached the yellow tier of less than one daily COVID case per 100,000 residents. And Magic Mountain is in Los Angeles County, which we all know is still in the most restrictive purple tier. So the question naturally Naturally is, how likely is it that Six Flags or actually any other park could reopen this spring? Joining us is Robert Niles, who writes the Consumer Guide Theme Park Insider. So, Robert, what are the chances of Six Flags Magic Mountain actually reopening when they tweeted they would? Well, theme parks are in the uh, business of wishful thinking, aren't they? <laughs> yes, they are. Um, I, it just, I, it's, it's just so impossible to predict anything. I've, I've, I've given up predicting stuff at this point. I, I'll know a theme park is open once I can go through the front gate, get on a roller coaster, and I crest that first lift hill. Until then, yeah, I'll remain skeptical. But uh, yeah, if people get vaccinated, if they can get the, if they can get the vaccine shipped in, and uh, yeah, we can see this current decrease in uh, infections continue to uh, to, to fall, uh, you know, maybe it could happen. And we remember spring last until the middle of June. Yeah, I guess maybe there's some some rationale for trying to tweet it into existence. You put it out there. What's the worst that can happen? It stays closed, right? Uh, absolutely. And we're talking about it, which, uh, you know, we weren't talking about Magic Mountain or Six Flags or theme parks that much before. And it's getting some attention. And, uh, you know, it's certainly something that has resonated with people. People are really looking forward to the day that we can get back to parks and, and big attractions like that. What exactly, Robert, would theme parks have to do once they get the go ahead in order to keep people safe? It really does depend if we're going to be operating under the rules that the state has put out at this point or uh, you know, we're going to get to a situation where the pandemic is over and they just say everything's wide open again. But I suspect, particularly looking at the uh, guide from Florida, where parks have been reopened since uh, last summer, uh, we're looking at a lot of physical distancing. We're looking at mandatory mask wearing. Uh, we're looking at a lot of capacity controls. So it'd be a different experience than people are used to in going to theme parks. That's for sure. Why do you think Six Flags made this announcement at this point? I can't, I can't let it go, oh, Robert. Because it's, it's, I mean, I know we're talking about, but it, do they know something? Maybe, or are they, you know, that optimistic? I can't imagine anyone being that optimistic. Well, I mean, they want to stay not just in front of people's attention, but they want to stay in front of government officials' attentions too. They mm. want to communicate that, hey, we've got procedures in place that we've implemented in other parks and other states around the country. We believe that they work. We've got them ready to go here in California. You know, if things are looking better here, you know, 
hey, why not? Let's work together and get this thing reopened this spring. Uh, I don't know what the state's response to that is going to be. So far, it's pretty much been crickets, but uh, they, they're putting it out there. Like you said, yeah. speak it into existence. Yeah, I guess so. Um, is it worth it, though, for them to reopen before the pandemic's over? I mean, how's that been working for, say, like Florida's Disney World? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Universal announced that they are at break even with the uh, theme parks that they currently have open, which are Orlando and then Japan as well. Uh, sharply reduced capacity. They've laid off a ton of people. They're not doing everything, but, but they've figured out a way to get it to break even. Disney hasn't said that they're actually at break even, but they've said that they're getting pretty close to that. So, uh, yeah, you can definitely do it at at this kind of lower threshold level than uh, they're used to. Certainly nobody is making the amount of money that they were making before all this stuff hit and, and theme parks were a cash cow for so many companies. Uh, but they think they can do it. And it's also nice, particularly for companies with uh, with uh, full-time employees to be able to, to hold on to those employees and not have to get in a situation where they have to train everyone from scratch uh, once they get the approval to reopen. I mean, some revenue, clearly better than no revenue. Um, but yeah. do you think it's been worth it for them to open and operate at a, a limited capacity? Well, I mean, they've, they've had a lot of success with some of the, uh, uh, you know, kind of temporary measures that they've put in place. Like Magic Mountain did that uh, uh, holiday drive through They're going to do a car show drive through Those have been really successful for them because the staffing for that is not that terribly much, and they can get uh, they can get some income going for that. Knott's Berry Farmers has food festivals. California Adventure is about to open for a mm-hmm. merchandise event. Legoland is doing some stuff. SeaWorld is a zoo now, so you know they're oh, open yeah. for their animal exhibits. So anything that gets some money coming in through the uh, front gate is uh, something that they're finding certainly helpful at this point. Robert, what do you think that first day back, say, at Disneyland, Universal, Magic Mountain will feel like? Feel like for, for us, but for you, too, because I'm, I don't know how many, if you've been able to go to Florida, but here, locally, I mean, what would that feel like for you, considering that that's what you do? I mean, it's going to be emotional for a lot of people, not yeah. just because of the opportunity to get back to go to a beloved place again, but for what it'll represent. It'll represent that, uh, you know, ideally that we are through the very worst of this pandemic, that's a really horrible thing that happened to all of us has has moved into the past. And we get to kind of celebrate that by doing something that we love to do before all of this happens. So I'm sure it's going to be a really emotional situation for a lot of people. Hopefully it won't be a logistical nightmare, yeah. uh, but that's going to be up to the parks to do. Yeah. I think Disneyland really kind of helped themselves ending that annual pass program so they can get back to just day tickets with that. So Robert, I, mean, I will, I we'll will see admit, what the logistics are. When I get on a roller coaster, it's going to be that front seat upwind. That's, that's the one thing I can guarantee. That's Robert Niles <laughs> with Theme Park Insider. Robert, thanks a lot. Always the best seat. Thanks for having thanks. me. All right. If you missed uh, any part of Take Two, we are wherever you get your podcast. There we will be waiting to be heard by you. You can also find us on Twitter. We're at Take Two, at Take Two. I'm there as well, at A Martinez LA. That's good for Twitter and Instagram for your social media convenience. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take Two is back tomorrow at 2. Marketplace is next. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.